Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. Rivka, congratulations. You did it. I Um, alone. You alone ended the strike. Um, (laughs) Yes, for anyone who doesn't know, the actors... The SAG After Union, the Screen Actors Guild, has reached a tentative agreement with the AMPTP. The strike officially ended this past Thursday, November 9th, after the union approved an agreement with a unanimous vote uh, from the uh, negotiating committee on Wednesday, November 8th, uh, after 118 days of striking. So, I mean, truly, I was kind of, you know, playing it for laugh up top, but truly, congratulations. Um, I'm so excited that... The actor's got a deal. Uh, how are you feeling? You know, I'm hyped. But I, I'm finding, you know, I, I think in the face of what's happening in Gaza, it was it was just like, I'll be real, my, it was hard to be, I'm having, I'm having trouble holding the joy. I, I'm just having trouble holding multiple things. Sure. So I just felt a little, like I'm, I, I feel in my head about it. Like I'm excited. It's great. I'm really happy. But it was... That's my honest truth. I'm excited, but I'm happy. Thank you for being honest with me. I mean, that's I I, I value that from you, and that like I know that I'm not I'm never gonna get a uh, a sugar coated or you know like a bullshitty answer. And in fact, you call me out on stuff regularly, and I love it. So please do. don't ever stop. <laughs> okay, I mean, not I like not not like harshly, but like no. But th- th- it's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast with you is that like. Yeah, there are times where I say things and you're like, uh, let's re-examine that. And you're like, oh, and I'm like, oh, fuck, you're right. That's let's <laughs> let me let me back up. Let me let me take it again. So, no. So I appreciate that honesty. Thank you, Frank. Of course. All right. So we're recording this on Friday, November 10th. And the 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 actual agreement itself, the, the deal points and the details have not been released. I, I believe they're supposed to be released sometime this afternoon. So um, apologies that will already be public by the time you hear this. But what we do know about the agreement, SAG has touted the contract as, quote, valued at over $1 billion, meaning billion dollars going to the actors. Uh, the deal in- includes minimum pay increases and, quote, unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation related to the use of artificial intelligence by the studios. So that's the AI stuff. Again, we don't know what the details of these AR- AI protections are yet. A couple other things that are included in this deal. Actors who appear on the most watched streaming shows will also receive bonuses. They also raise the pension and health caps, and that will, according to SAG, channel more value into uh, SAG's operating funds. And they also won critical protections for diverse communities. But one thing that we know is not in this deal is despite SAG's uh, various gains, it was unable to secure a cut of streaming revenues for its members. Uh, which had been a priority for the union. Initially, SAG had uh, proposed that studios share 2% of revenue from streaming before dropping it down to 1% and then dropping it down again to 57 cents per subscriber. So this is so so streaming revenue splits did not get secure, but it looks like streaming bonuses are included for shows that perform very, very well. 
And again, we will learn more about the specifics of the deal in the next week or so. And I'm sure on next week's episode, we'll get to dig into more of those specifics. But I mean, other than the, you know, the not getting the rev split from streamers, it seems like this is, it's being touted as this is a very good deal. Yes, this is being taught, you know, I wish it would, we get everything, but yay, this is the world we live in. It is very, it's amazing. It's amazing. I think the biggest win is just what it did for people to see union power. Like this win is going to reverberate anyone. This is going to reverberate for all unions all around. I've heard a few people kind of say things like, oh, well, now there's going to be less productions because they're going to make less stuff. I, I don't care. I mean, really, when you're working for so little and you had the existential crisis of AI on the table, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? And we also went into detail about this on last week's episode on our uh, episode for Sorry to Bother You about how, yes, all of these networks, studios are slashing their production budgets. That is partially due to what will now be rising labor costs from the writers and actors, you know, securing living fucking wages. Uh, But it's also because these companies had just been running on debt for like a decade and now, now that the economy is squeezed, uh, these companies actually have to, you know, be businesses that make money. So it's 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 not solely because uh, labor has won here. It should also be said that steel still needs to be ratified by the rank and file SAG members. So mm. I'm curious to see once we actually get the details of the deal, if there will be, you know, a, a coalition within SAG's rank and file that's like, no, we don't we don't want this. You know, I know that there was a small coalition within the Writers Guild, even when that tentative agreement was reached, that were like, no, 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 go back for more. So we'll be curious to see what the response from the rank and file is. Because as you were saying, you know, everyone is more militant now. Everyone is more willing to go back on on the picket line if it means they're, you know, going to win the things that they actually deserve. So we'll see how it actually plays out. I think that was beautiful that came out of this moment was just the level of pride that actors could actors felt and the conversation around of this creative work is labor. And it's really kind of I feel like it was a cultural moment and changed how maybe um, the work of an actor was viewed. There were so many important conversations that were had because of the strike and the value that actors have in culture and the value of art in culture i wouldn't i would say it's it's one of the most valuable things that we have and it certainly proved that like without our labor we could shut a whole whole bunch of the economy down and i think that was really really crucial all right so we will i'm sure touch on this again next week once we actually know more about this deal uh, yeah. So we should get to our conversation today, a very fun conversation about the film Clueless. Uh, but before we do, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. 
All right, we are going to take a break, but we will be right back with Karen DiConcetto talking about Clueless. All right, today we are joined by Karen DiConcetto, which is the proper <laughs> Italian pronunciation we just discussed. Karen started her career as a performer and was half of the UK pop duo Daphne and Celeste. They had three top 20 singles and their song Ugly was on the Bring It On soundtrack. Oh my God, Karen, I'm learning all of this just now. Uh, although they disbanded in 2000, in March of 2015, they returned to the music scene with their catchy single, You and I Alone, and made The Guardian's best tracks of 2015 <laughs> list. As a writer in 2007, Karen co-wrote and co-starred in the political satire I Dig Dug at the New York Fringe Festival, which won Best Play and went on for an off-Broadway extension. In addition to writing on ABC Family's Ruby and the Rockets and Nickelodeon's The Troop, Karen co-created the series Recovery Road and served as the executive producer and showrunner. She was also the executive producer and showrunner of Scam Austin on Facebook Watch. Wow, Karen. Very impressive. I'm learning all of this right now as we're speaking. Welcome yeah. to Movies versus Capitalism. Oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> I, um, I haven't read that bio in a very long time, and I don't actually even know when that bio was from. So hearing that was it was funny. I mean, I really I really went through it. It was your a very life detailed bio. There... Before your eyes, it was very detailed. I, I don't know if it. It didn't necessarily need to be as detailed, but thank you. But we're gonna dig into more detail right now, Karen, because. Obviously, we're all friends. We know you, but like, I think both Frank and I don't know as much about your pop star career, which we're not saying this flippantly. This is very real. You were part of this pop duo. You were living my childhood dreams. So I want to hear, <laughs> <laughs> for the sake of like the film we're about to discuss, paint the picture a little bit because this was, you were like part of the 90s pop star thing. Yeah, it was a, I was in a manufactured pop band. I auditioned in New York to be part of this pop duo. And when I got and it was just, you know, they had a deal in the UK. So they flew us to London. And then we were, you know, in London for a couple of years in this pop band. And it was this crazy, it was such a fun, crazy time to be in the pop world. This is pre-Napster. So, like, that in and of itself should paint the picture. You know, it was wow. a... It was a time, it was like right before everything completely changed in the music industry, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, no one really cared like in terms of like money, like everything was a tax write-off and like, like everyone was making so much money. So when they first asked us where we wanted to live, I had seen the movie Notting Hill and I was like, <laughs> oh, should we live in Notting Hill? And so, like, <laughs> so we lived in this like, and how old you know, were you? amazing like flat i was 17 when i auditioned for it and wow. then i was 18 when i went over there and celeste my bandmate she was younger so we had a you know there was a guardian and we met at the audition and then suddenly we were you know living together and you know working together and creative yeah. collaborators That's so wild i'll send you a video our big claim to fame is that we were the first and only um, pop band to ever play the reading rock festival i can't believe that's not in my bio but um but <laughs> we're, so i'll send you i'll send you the video but um we played with like we were on the main stage with rage against the machine and blink 182 and Holy there shit. were a lot of really unhappy people who came to our performance so it's it's worth a watch that's incredible can i ask how you made the transition from pop stardom to playwright and t and television writer <laughs> well so i had so i was a kid actor so it all started with like being you okay. know just a kid performer so i was a kid actor and i auditioned to be in the pop band 
you know, I think when I was younger, I probably thought that I like wanted, like I had Broadway aspirations or something. And then I was in this pop band. And then when I came back, I, you know, returned to, I returned to, you know, just acting and auditioning. I'd always wanted to write, but it, it was always on my list of things that I wanted to um, do, and, you know, career-wise. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until I wrote this play with my friend that was this um, political satire. Um, it wasn't until then that I that I really that it became a, that it became a, a career thing. And you know, I was obsessed with this. Was in it, it started in two thousand four. I I guess you know I don't know if you can relate to this, but like when I was younger, if I made a certain amount of money. I would just like take a break sometimes and I wouldn't have like a survival job. I would just, you know, if I made like $5,000, I was like, Ooh, I'm good. Like I yeah. got this. You know, so I did that once. Yeah. I, yeah. So I had just had to come off of some, some job where I'd made like I'd made money. And so I wasn't, so I didn't have to, a survival job. So I was home all the time watching C-SPAN. I loved C-SPAN. I was really into the 2004 presidential election. And so, and I loved C-SPAN because it was so boring and you could like see all of the presidential hopefuls, like, you know, at clam bakes and just like at a diner, <laughs> just talking to people, you know, so it was really, so I got real, I did a real deep dive into it. I loved Howard Dean, loved him. And classic. yeah, classic. So one, one day a friend of ours came over um, and she was like, you know, can we turn on MTV? And I was like, yeah. I was like, you know what? Like, I don't, I haven't seen a video in so long. Like, all I watch is C-SPAN. And my friend who I wrote the play with was like, we need to write a monologue about that. So that's where that launched the play for us, like the beginnings of a kernel of an idea. And then from that, you know, from there, we were really lucky. We got an, we got representation based off the play. And then, you know, our agent, at the time, who's now my manager, he said, you know, have you ever thought about like working in television? And we were like, well, we would love to work in television because, you know, <laughs> we were we were kids, you know, as a kid, I would come home and I would watch hours and hours and hours of television. There was no such thing as like, you know, limiting screen time in my mm -hmm. world. And, you know, Rochelle and myself both were like, we just, we love TV. And so, so we kind of just, you know, kind of got into it and we wrote spec scripts and we started, you know, just sort of reading all these books on like, you know, television structure. And, you know, that was the beginning of our career in TV. And, you know, that's what I've been doing ever since. So, so long story short, you're just successful at every creative endeavor <laughs> that you've pursued. Uh, Hyper talented is the, is the explanation. I don't know about all that, but, um, but, you know, I, I do think that with creativity, if you're creative in one area, chances are you're creative in another area as well. You sure. Know? Agreed. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, you chose quite the film for us to watch. We're talking about Clueless, which I couldn't be... It's perfect for you. And you're, again, in this pop star group. You're sort of, like, centered in... To me, when I think about, like, that 90s aesthetic and also your show... Yeah. Do you pronounce it scum or scam? Scum, right? It's scum. Scum, which oh, it I is scum. Okay. I loved scum. It's on Facebook Watch, and both you and our mutual best friend Jesse, who was also on the podcast uh, Barbie episode, wrote on that show, oh, and it's such a great look on the at the world of teenagers and 
So it makes a lot of sense that we're talking about Clueless. So let's jump into it. 1995, Clueless comes out. It's written and directed by Amy Heckerling. It stars Alicia Silverstone, Stacey Dash, Brittany Murphy, and Paul Rudd, and more. But those are our leads. Let's not forget Dan Hedaya. <laughs> Budget of $12 million. Worldwide box office was about $56.6 million. Might be more by now. And if you haven't seen Clueless in a while, let's refresh your memory. It's based loosely on Jane Austen's Emma. It's a teen comedy set in Beverly Hills. It follows the rich and socially successful Cher Horowitz as she navigates teenage life's challenges. Cher sees herself as a matchmaker and initially coaxes two teachers into dating each other in order to get her grades up. Alongside her friend Dion, she gives a makeover to new student Ty, inadvertently boosting her popularity. As Cher grapples with friendships, crushes, and her relationship with her stepbrother Josh, she realizes her own need for personal growth beyond mere appearances. So a little bit of historical context for when this film came out. As Rivka mentioned, it is 1995. Bill Clinton is in his third year as the 42nd president of the United States. Dunkaroos and Lunchables are trending foods, and Starbucks has just introduced the Frappuccino. <laughs> in January, the O.J. Simpson murder trial begins in Los Angeles. And in August, there is the second largest corporate takeover ever when Walt Disney agrees to purchase ABC Cap Cities for $19 billion. Forrest Gump wins the Oscar for Best Picture, and ER is the most popular TV show, and Sheryl Crow wins a Grammy for Best New Artist. Time Magazine's Person of the Year is Newt Gingrich. That's <laughs> such a bummer. Also, Crayola introduces scented crayons, and only 14% of Americans use the World Wide Web. There is no Google. Netscape Navigator is the most popular web browser, and in July, Amazon.com opens for business. Wow. wow. Big year. Big year. So many, so many things that defined, I feel like, my childhood, including this film. Yeah, and I really looked up to Newt Gingrich at that time, too. So this, <laughs> yeah, this totally knew who that was. The person of the year, I'm just, I'm kind of reeling from that. Look, yeah. I was seven years old. I saw that guy on C-SPAN, and I was like, that is the coolest dude I have ever seen. <laughs> I, went as, I went as Newt for Halloween that year. <laughs> so, Karen, we always like to start by asking our guest, why did you pick this movie for us to watch in this context? Well... Firstly, I was looking for something that was going to be fun, that was going to be light. And, you know, when I was, I mean, I remember going to see Clueless. I'm older than you. So I was 14, I think, when the movie came out. I was between eighth and ninth grade. And I went to see it like three times in the movie theater. I loved it. And so I, I think it was also just like thinking, thinking about a movie that I loved. And then also thinking about this podcast and what the movie, you know, capitalism, yes, but also like the consumerism in that movie is like, you know, next level. And I was oh, yeah. really curious to watch it from this perspective and, and have a conversation about it. Because, you know, when I first saw the movie, like, I don't think I even realized like how, how much it inf impacted my fashion but as I started like really thinking about it over the past, you know, couple of days, I that year after like that like six month period after I saw Clueless, I it was the only time in my life that I've like circled things in magazines and mm -hmm. said to my mom, like, I want this Calvin Klein chain, like it was a chain belt. And I was like, I want this belt. 
I don't care. Like, if it's the only Christmas present I get, this is what I want is this belt. And I don't think I quite connected that, like, Clueless had come out, like, three months before I suddenly was obsessed with, like, a Calvin Klein chain, you know, chain link belt. I totally relate. I feel like I I had memories in flight. I feel like it's the first time I also was, like, the Delia's magazine, you know, like, circling things. Yes. But what I remember more than anything is, like, the desperation underneath it, which came from this because I also, I saw this in theaters many times. I loved this movie. I remember seeing it during, it was a time where we would go, actually the theater's still up here, Cobble Hill Cinemas, but they put plastic bags on it on the, because they were like, it was the lice epidemic of the 90s. I mean, I'm sure there's still lice, but it was like big lice, like lice falling on people's desks. Oh my God. It was like, I feel like. (laughs) Oh my God. So they were like, you have to. That's a core memory of putting the wrapping the thing with plastic. So I loved it. But what I was like eight, everything that I digested about the hierarchy Mm -hmm. and the class system, that was the urgency underneath the need for these clothes. Because I think the main message that I walked away from it with was if you want to survive, if you want to be at the top of the food chain in any context of schooling, you need to look a certain way and acquire these clothes and it i mean super early on shaped a lot of how i felt i needed to navigate to stay safe in a really toxic way even though i still love it and hold it so so to my heart karen can i ask real fast where you grew up so i grew up in bethlehem pennsylvania um famous for bethlehem steel um, and then um, I moved to the city when I, I, I came back and forth, like, to the city, like, f- to audition as a kid. And uh, my uncle lived here. And so I always really just wanted to live in New York. And when I was 16, my brother was in a Broadway show, and my mom got an apartment in the city. And so I started school here. So I went to high school for my last couple of years here. So the, so yeah. so we're all experiencing this from like an East Coast perspective because this is a very this is a very California Los Angeles movie. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, that's the other thing about Clueless is that I guys when I moved to when I moved to LA, basically everything I knew about LA was from Clueless. <laughs> so like when I first moved there, I was like, oh, I don't want to go to the Valley because the, yeah. the Valley is like so bad. And I like I, the driving. I was like terrified of driving because of that. Oh, Dion on the highway the, like, is yeah. documentary footage mm-hmm. of me learning to drive, and Frank can yeah. attest to that. I yeah. can absolutely. Yep, Terrif- a terrifying period for yeah. all drivers in Los Angeles was Rivka's yeah. first year in LA. Oh my god, same. Everywhere in LA is twenty minutes apart. You know, like yes. I, I'll, I'll remember that forever from this movie. Yes. So that's a very, you know, you're right though, Frank. It's interesting because we, I had never, I had never been to California when I saw, when I saw the movie. So it definitely was like a very different kind of like alternate reality in a lot of ways, you know, everything Mm -hmm. about the movie and everything about their experience. And I think now, something that I was kind of surprised by in a good way is that it held up in terms of like the in terms of the writing and the characters and the story like it all held up really really well and it wasn't you know I think there are a lot of movies 
from that period, especially teen movies that have a lot of cringe moments, like where mm. it's like, oof, like characters mm-hmm. say things that are, you know, that certainly no character would utter now. And I didn't feel like it was too, I, I, you know, I don't feel like anybody says friend of Dorothy anymore, but like, I feel like it wasn't like too, it, it wasn't offensive in the way that some movies from that era can be now no no it's not like when like watching american pie now and you're like oh that's sexual assault like that is a right. full on you know like that's full-on sexual assault that's played for laughs and for right. like is it look how funny and sexy this is yeah this 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 doesn't right. have a lot of that going on in it it doesn't which was which was great to like i think especially for like my my wanting to believe that i've always had good taste you know i think <laughs> it was like it was reassuring in that sense but I think also it's interesting now, you know, talking about, you know, talking about privilege, the way that we talk about privilege now versus then, I think it's totally. really, um, it's really interesting. And, you know, sort of this character who, like, her very, you know, everything about her life is privilege. And she mm-hmm. thinks that her opinion matters. And she thinks that she has all the answers. And th- she thinks she knows how to fix everything <laughs> because of that privilege and entitlement. It's really impressive how, like, Cher's privilege, or, like, most of these characters in this high school's privilege kind of, like, manifests in every, like, detail of how they live their lives. Like, like the way that Cher drives is so reckless and dangerous. And But you're like, oh, that tracks, because this is a person who, like, literally is like, there are no consequences. They're like, there there never will be. So, like, why do I need to learn how to drive? With the, the one of the inciting incidents of the movie is her getting a C in debate class and just or, or getting like poor grades in a bunch of her classes and understanding that like she's not going to have to work to get her grades better. She just has to like go and use her privilege and her arguing skills to just get better grades. Just like totally, totally like skipping over any sense of like meritocracy. Yeah, it's really incredible. I was just going to say that's so brilliant that part because we also see that her father totally celebrates mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. and therefore we yep. kind of fall into celebrating it a little bit, which we can get into what that does psychologically to the audience. But we see the system and the structure that it's like, this is the world of capitalism. This is this world of elitism. It doesn't ma- Education doesn't matter. What matters is you'll be applauded for figuring out how to do the least amount of labor and reap the most reward. And that is the mm-hmm. system and that is how Cher's been raised. And that's what she sees in her father. And, you know, I think it is to credit the writing that we also see her father is not doesn't seem to be a happy man. Like it doesn't lead towards a happy place. He's very stressed and screaming all the time. All the time. Gives a With great his rep- big cell phone. <laughs> doesn't have love. Yeah. So he's got high cholesterol. He's, de- <laughs> he's, he's stressing himself out way too much. <laughs> No love. He can't even eat a burger. Like, yeah. and he has to work late hours. You know, yeah. But you're, you're right, Rivka. When she comes back with the better grades, he says, she says, like, are you happy? He's like, I, I wouldn't be any prouder than if you had earned the grades yourself in the first place. So satisfying. I'm I'm so glad I get to talk to you two about this because, like, bo- it sounds like both of you had a similar experience where, like, subconsciously this movie kind of, like, ginned up your your consumerism and your 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 subconscious need to, I don't know, like, play within the, the, the high school social hierarchy based on all of these, like, materialistic goods. Because as a guy, like, I mean, I remember seeing this in high school and being like, oh, you know, like, funny, like, funny movie. But, like, that that part of it never hit me where I was like, oh, man, I need to go shop now 
and I find that really interesting because the, the the note I wrote down, which I was like, this is this is like my my big brain take on this, <laughs> is that this movie is the Wolf of Wall Street for rich teenagers, meaning. <laughs> Meaning that it is like satirizing and lampooning like this lifestyle. Like clearly Amy Heckerling has her opinions about the privilege of all of these kids. But in the way that the film is portrayed, it could be viewed as like a glorification. Similarly, like how in The Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese is being like, these guys are the fucking worst people on planet Earth. But there are still so many men who come out of that movie and they're like, well, I guess I'm getting into finance now. Like, that was the coolest shit I've ever seen. So. <laughs> well, also when you see a movie, too, you know, and I think that, you know, when we were young, we were at this impressionable point in our lives. And and we didn't even re necessarily I didn't realize this until I rewatched it this week. I didn't realize the way that it had impacted me. Mm. I also didn't think about the other part that the thing that I don't, that I think does not hold up as well is the diet stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause there's a lot more in there than, and again, I was like, oh, like how do we internalize this when we're young versus when you're older and you, you know, you internalize in a different kind of way. We have different kind of language now. You know, back then nobody was, everybody was on a diet. And my bends, they don't feel nothing like steel. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> that was really, I mean, one of my favorite lines of all time, time is you're a virgin who can't drive. Oh, so and, good. Um, that was way harsh, Ty. Like, I mean, that was our catchphrase. Like in high school, it's always, I mean, I feel like still as an adult. Like I still so say good. it sometimes. That was way harsh, Ty. <laughs> And on this rewatch, like Alicia Silverstone's delivery of that line, she's like so, so hurt. Good. Like she's like she's, so she's like she's like welling up in tears. I was like, damn, she's so good in this it's, movie. She's so good. I was just gonna say, I think you're really onto something, Frank. And I have the same feeling that this is clearly really brilliant satire, and yet because of maybe it's the direction the way it's painted in the world it's just so it's so lovely it's so charming you can tell and i've heard in interviews that amy hackerling loved share like that share was the character i mean that turned into a tv show because she could write share forever and share is such a wonderful character for me as i was re-watching i felt like share serves as this metaphor for the u.s charity model essentially Ooh. the the charity mm. model being you know, affluent elites and government who set terms of aid and relief and social services. And that charity model in our country is rooted in this moral hierarchy, right? That wealthy people and the elite are seen as superior and virtuous. And, you know, poor people need them. We wouldn't, wouldn't know any other way. And so they need the wealthy elite to give them a makeover, if you will. And so Cher personifies this mindset mm -hmm especially in her relationship um, with Ty. So when Ty enters, right, Ty is her project. She's this new girl entering into this elitist, you know, where we've already seen the different class hierarchies. She has a vaguely Brooklyn accent, which is supposed to signify, <laughs> signify to us, accent. which is very similar to how Amy Hegerling speaks herself. So it's like she, to me, sounds the most like, the writer, but it's so funny that she, it's like her and the and the the white robber archetype who holds um, Cher up in the valley have the Love same it. accent. So there's just like this hint yeah. that you're like, <laughs> the poor class have the working class Brooklynite. But of course, Brittany Murphy is brilliant. 
She literally says to Ty when she meets her, she tells Josh when she when Ty's in the other room and she's taken on her, her project, I'm rescuing her from teenage hell. I'm going to take that lost soul in there and make her well-dressed and popular. Her life will be better because of me. That is the charity model mindset. And what comes with the charity model is, of course, that as soon as the person, the project that you're trying to help has any kind of agency, you resent it. And there's always strings attached. So she tells Ty who Ty can date or not date. Ty's like clearly authentically interested in Travis. And she's like, absolutely not. We don't do that. This is how we talk. She gives her, she's like, we're not going to talk the way you talk. You're going to talk like me. Gives her diet advice, takes all her personal choices. She's not allowed to smoke only at parties, which is another fascinating aspect of this. And then the moment that Ty starts to find the agency and likes Josh, which I think is also really interesting because Cher doesn't give a fuck about, by the way, her stepbrother, which did creep me out as a child and still creeps me out, even though they're not blood related. She doesn't like Josh until Ty has agency and likes Josh. And I just thought that was also another interesting nuance of the elite being like, oh, is that Mm. the thing we like now? You watch the Kardashians do it, you know. Oh, that's the new trend. Actually, it's mine. That's what I've wanted and I like all along and now I'm going to take it. So it's Ty who likes Josh and then Cher likes Josh. It's the turning point. She's As soon as Ty has agency, Cher in her like white privilege and elite privilege says, I'm in an alternate reality or something. She just like can't understand what's happening if she's not in control. And she pivots and just finds another way to be like the performative charity helper and becomes captain of the pismo beach (laughs) relief fund it's an amazing (laughs) joke it's amazing it's so good yeah there's a if you haven't watched it a while there's uh basically like what takes us through the third act is there's been some sort of disaster what's the disaster in pismo beach Beach disaster (laughs) like a hurricane or something so shara's like i will be in charge of the pismo beach disaster relief there's a great scene where she's tabling for it and it, like the camera pans over like actual organizers that are doing like it's like save the it's, like save the world save the trees yeah. and then it's like pismo beach and everyone's <laughs> at the pismo beach table which speaks which speaks to this 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 charity metaphor that you're laying out riv which is like whatever share thinks is the most important thing to focus on that becomes everyone's central focus I was just going to say there's a great book, Mutual Aid, by Dean Spade, that gives that's the alternative to this model is mutual aid. It's seeing, you know, her being such a product of like not only like of her like smaller society, the one that you're like the one that we're speaking about, the privilege. But then it's also like she's just she really, truly is in a lot of ways this like embodiment of like capitalism. Oh, yeah. It is, as you said, brilliant satire, but and but it's also like she is, you know, she is the product of her, like of all of that, as opposed to like, you know, rebelling against that, which I guess is like the Josh, like, you know, archetype in this world. Right. Mm -hmm. She's the one who is just completely and totally a product of this world. And, you know, I think what's interesting is like, you know, at the end, you're sort of like. You know, well, how much? Who's actually changed in the equation? Is it Josh who's changed, or is it Cher that's changed? And has she just brought him closer to her, as opposed to him bringing her closer to, you know, caring about CNN, for example? <laughs> yeah, it's it. You're right. It is kind of like it, it's like a fairly weak 
close like final arc for Cher, but I think that's kind of intentional in that yes. like she only becomes just like this like the slightest bit more empathetic for, like the whole early part of the movie she like like rips she like won't let Ty be with Travis. She's like trying to force Ty to be with Elton who absolutely sucks. The but worst. then like Cher's change is that She's just like, she like loosens up a little bit. She's like, yeah, no, Ty, you can be with Travis. And like, oh, I'm going to help Pismo Beach. And oh, I'll actually like maybe consider my stepbrother who I, you know, had written off. And these are, I guess, playing within the social hierarchies within the high school, within Beverly Hills. But then you zoom out and you keep in mind, like all of these people are insanely wealthy. Like there's not, like she hasn't really changed her outlook and her internal class conflict that she's applying to everybody else. It's just like, okay, you've just... You decided to to like other types of rich people. Nor is she offering any material change to Ty. No. Right. And and I think that even like I think that last scene when like they're like you know at the you know they're at the wedding which like I oh and the, even when I was younger I thought that wedding scene was really it was very odd that they're at the teacher's <laughs> wedding like I guess so bizarre. <laughs> it's so weird. But at the end, when he comes up to her, he's like, oh, you know, there's like a $200 bet going and like, who's going to get the bouquet? And it's like, oh, like, is he because is he now like gone a little bit closer to the dark side? It feels like it, it hard. This movie hardly feels like an indictment of this. It, it's a satire, but it also doesn't feel like an indictment of this, the system. Totally. Although there's so much potential. That's a really good way of putting it. But it doesn't feel, but I think that that, you know, when you're mentioning like, you know, like Clinton's third year in office and sort of where we were at as a country, I think it feels very much of its time. And and also when you're talking about like aiding other countries and being, I don't feel like neoliberalism was necessarily very, it was criticized in, you know, academic circles, but I, I hardly feel like it was something that was actually that people were reading articles about or discussing and, you know, in the paper or something. It's kind of bubbling you know? up. It's like just in getting getting going. Yeah. And actually, that's such a great point, because in a lot of ways, yeah. you could critique this through the lens that um, this aids in that. I mean, maybe Josh, Josh really is sort of that neoliberal character who just kind of, oh, Let's let's move to the center for love, which actually echoes a lot of what we saw in You've Got Mail, that feeling of of mm, love, politics, like who cares if you have to bend a little and move your moral compass? She's hot. Who cares if she's my sister? <laughs> love wins. Who cares if I'm 19 and she's 16? <laughs> That's right. the other part. Would that fly anymore? Like, I mean, could you really? I don't. I don't Better think fucking that not. you could write. I don't think you could write that anymore. Where she's sick. Well, you she have. Says, I mean, we. They still make movies like that. Call me by your name. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> but that's a different. I mean, I. But a, like a teen, a, a mainstream teen comedy. Would they be able to do that? I don't think so. No, I don't think they'd make them step siblings anymore. Just like we didn't need that. <laughs> we didn't need it. Could have been a neighbor. Could have been a family friend. It helps that everybody looks 40. Like everybody, do you, okay, when they go to the college party and there's a 50 year old man who's like the college student just to justify them using 30 year olds as high school, like everyone's age is totally off. Well, that's kind of, that's enough. Their ages are totally off. The other thing that cracks me up about the parties is that I forgot how lame the parties were. Like the parties do not look that fun. You wouldn't really, no. I would go. 
No, maybe I You'd mean, go I, to those parties? Oh, yeah. That looks... You'd really, go to the valley party? I'd go to that valley party. Suck and blow. Sign me up. I've been to some valley parties. Don't <laughs> knock the valley parties. I'm, I'm not knocking valley parties, but I'm just... I, I felt like then the college party with like... I was like, who is this band? I had to like look it up. But it was like oh, the Mighty Mighty Boss The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. My first uh, live concert. What? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh yeah. I was not. It was a. It was a buddy of mine, and they were doing. He was a big fan of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and they were doing like a free concert in Philly, and so we went. And I was like, Wow, I don't know anything about this. Is this what all music is like? This is not that good. Wow, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> they had that guy whose only job in the band was to dance on stage. So like, when you see in the you see in the movie that one guy who's just dancing, like that's a member of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. And that's all he did. He didn't play an instrument. He didn't sing. They were just like, you know, it was it was different back then. Music industry. They were like, can we get a can we get a per diem for our dude who just uh, dances and doesn't do anything? That's funny. The other one, the like, this is like, this isn't this is just a funny thing. Like Elton and the Cranberries CD. I forgot about that. Like how he loves the cranberries. He like talks about it in school. He's like, I've got to go get my cranberries CD yeah. or something, and then he like, plays it in the car. Like the cranberries, a way to bring it back. Just one more point about the share of it all. I don't know that share gets enough credit as this archetype that sets up Legally Blonde. I mean, we see this character over and over again. I'm sure there's ones sure. before this, but she particularly sets up this. I put on the dumb facade, like I dress up and I'm performatively dumb on the outside but well-meaning on the inside. So any harm I cause didn't have harmful intention. And I think that's so dangerous and sets up also what we see in our forgiveness then later on of the Paris Hiltons and the heiresses and certainly the Kardashians, you know. And actually, I'm very smart and could go to law school. So I should be trusted, you know. So I am still, again, this like moral superiority of like, why I why I have my money is because I work really hard. You know, there's the I'm just thinking about like Kardashians built their whole brand on that, you know? And and it also is like in the movie, like the fact that she literally argues her way into getting A's. You know, it's mm -hmm. like she doesn't actually work, you know, but she feels like she's working. And so sort of the illusion of working versus the actual work and like what like it feels like there are blurry lines between those two things. Yeah. In this sort of more, you know, in this world that we're talking about. And the, the last thing I want to hit on the her relationship with Ty, because I think that is really like the central relationship of this movie. Mm -hmm. We've hit a lot of it just about how like Ty is portrayed as like the lower class person in this film, just in like all of her habits and her speech and her dress. And it really broadcasts to the audience that like if you are let's say, you know, not conventionally attractive, you don't dress well, you don't, you know, you don't speak well, then you are, you are a less valuable person. And that message doesn't really get corrected at the end because like the only change that Ty makes and that Cher make, still makes for Ty is, yeah, you can be with Travis, the skater stoner dude, you know, like that's, yeah. that's the one change. Like I would have loved to have seen Cher come into high school in like sweats with no makeup on and you know like that would have been a cool that would have been a, a more effective arc I feel like 
of her coming and being like, you know what? None of this shit matters. We're all basing this, like this whole social hierarchy doesn't matter. I want to be comfortable. I don't give it. We don't, we, no one should give a shit about this stuff anymore. And then like seeing all of the disparate cliques in high school, just kind of like merging all together and being like, yeah, why are we all just like, why are only the TV people sitting with the TV people? Stoners with the stoners, popular with the popular. But I feel like the end, it just like really reinforces kind of like shares privilege and perspective. Yeah. And I think also if it was really going to push through the satire to the very end, that wouldn't be Cher's ending, right? So it's kind of like it's a satire mm. up until Act 3 where then it sort of turns into something that's a little bit more, for lack of a better word, like earnest and love and like it sort of, mm. like, you know, it shifts. And I don't, I didn't feel that shift tonally, but Frank, you're you're right that like, the tie of it all is sort of just left, you know. And then it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, you know, make up, everything's fine. Yeah. Where, you know, really, you almost want to see Ty not forgive. And what does that look like in Cher's world? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the other thing is that what you're talking about, actually, Tina Fey did in The Mean Girls. She did oh, that. That's right. She did it. She did it. She, she did, did that moment at the end. And mm -hmm. it works really well, you know. But I think with this one, it's like I feel like that that those last moments, like the tie and share, like, you know, if the roles were really reversed, I think it would have like taken on a full satire. And with the ending that it has, it's not surprising that like you two as like young women, as little girls and, and pr probably little girls around the country were like, oh, I need to be like this. Like this is this is the archetype. Like, I, like now I must do this um, rather than offering like a really strong critique of this lifestyle but again like you know this movie is it's brilliant satire and if you can read it's between the lines you, you you pick all of that up but like i can totally understand how on a young person's mind you you're unable to like really understand the satire of it all yeah the or cues... you think you do yeah or you, you think, think you, you do <laughs> or you think you do and it, it's the subtle cues right that are always yeah. underscored just to your point about the classified it on this rewatch, it was so fascinating how the elite class was so filled in. There was so much detail about their life experience. We learn about, you know, Cher's parents and upbringing. We learn less about Dion, but we still learn things through their characters. And all of the working class characters are, again, like very, we only see them through the eyes of the elite. We don't really, we don't even really know where Ty is from, how she got there, who, what her family experience is, other than we do know she's not a virgin. You know, so they're defining these yeah. things for us. And she smokes weed and does coke, which are bad. Oh, my God. My favorite yeah. line. Oh, shit. You guys got coke here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is America. <laughs> like, the best. But I also think there was another thing I noticed, which was so strange. In terms of how each class reacts to stress, we have that moment where um, in the classroom, they all get bad grades and Travis tries to jump out the window, like has this very strong response to like, and it's comic, but he's serious. He plays it in earnest. Like I have to jump out the window oh, yeah. and like kill myself. And, you know, Cher's response to stress is shopping and massages and mm -hmm. I'm going to fix the grades. It's not a big deal, daddy. And then Ty has this moment when she gets stressed out as well and she hits her head. And I just, that stood out to me as like, it's so subtle, but what a deep contrast. That's a pretty profound thing to watch someone do and pretty real for like a comedy. She bangs her head against the, um, I think it's at the diner or a counter. 
that was just again things that you're subtly learning about oh well a morally superior person would potentially understand how to deal with their stress in a more graceful way like shop and get a massage and there's something inferior and debase in this react those subtle things always fascinate me and what these films are teaching us politically yeah it's really interesting i'd never i did not see that well, then you're right though well what do you have right so it's like really material because yeah. it's like what do you actually have at your disposal so that and it's mm-hmm. like for share she can do anything mm-hmm. but Ty can't go to the mall and just like spend thousands of dollars. She can bang her head. You know, it's like very like it's pretty like kind of stark actually. Yeah. Right. And it's um, contrasted by how all of these kids at this high school just talk their way out of every single bit of adversity that they encounter. Just like like Elton's always going. He's like, I got a mom. Can I just go to the bathroom? Uh, Dion during tennis lesson is like, I've got a note from my tennis trainer who doesn't want to like, who doesn't want me to like be so training with outside people. It's uh, so good. It's it's, it's so, so good, good. But it's brilliant because like when Cher faces like the tiniest bit of adversity in the end, but just like not being as popular as she was, she like has an a full on existential crisis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's a little less popular. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, it is interesting to think about like what that movie, what the version of that is now, you know? And it's it's really interesting to think about like what, like does that story even work in the world of like social media and like mm-hmm. sort of what we have, like sort of in the world of the Kardashians? Like is this, I don't know. It's like- Well, there's, mm-hmm. this, there's this really interesting concept of a window of tolerance, which is sort of, that window that you have to be able to really be centered and present for something before you're either in in like a hyper emotional state or a hypo emotional state. So where you're really reactive and Mm -hmm. for people who've actually experienced maybe a lot of trauma early on, that window of tolerance tends to be a little bit wider because you've had these, you've had experience being uncomfortable. You've had experiences Mm -hmm. where you've had to work, you know, so the ties Mm. and the Travis, their window of tolerance is going to be a lot, wider i mean they certainly right. have experienced a lot more in this film than than share does and what we see with share is the second anything is beyond her ability to tolerate or slightly uncomfortable because she's been so privileged like you said frank she says this world is crazy it's just upside down <laughs> yeah <laughs> she can't everything is it. off i always even the when i first like saw it when i was young I always thought the mom line where it's like her mom died and she's just gone. Like there's something, it's just this throwaway line. We only hear about the mom one other time. I always thought that was so interesting that like this complete lack of a maternal presence, like how that has impacted her life and who she is, you know, like Mm. I always, I always thought that that little like, you know, and yes, it's like a ridiculous way that her mom died, but it's also like <laughs> Routine the undercurrents of yeah, but like <laughs> the undercurrents of like what that is, you know, when we're talking about we're talking about trauma, it's like she doesn't have a mom. So like, yes, she has all the privilege in the world, but she never had a mom. She died when she was a baby. Mm-hmm. And the undercurrents of the diet culture, like you're saying, that's a small thing. It's there. Mm-hmm. But I can't help but also think about because Brittany Murphy's performance in this is so brilliant. And it's so, so tragic to think about her journey and her trajectory mm, and what we, we what we know of what diet culture and what that 
psychology and the pressures of capitalism to be thin and Hollywood and where it all intersects that she felt from what I've seen in documentaries and read really terrible about being perceived as you know as Ty even though Ty is the most her performance is just breathtaking I think she's so good but to feel like terrible and and the movie sets her up to feel terrible and and I think that what's really I think that it's it's very it's very strange because you when you watch it now it's like all of that was so normalized like that's just how people spoke to each other that's how we talked that was like what you know there's no no one was really thinking I think in a lot of ways the 90s were like this period where like we thought we had dealt with it everything we were like gone did that racism <laughs> gone like it's just like gone like we had dealt with all the things it's all <laughs> uphill from here baby yeah exactly nothing but I, only getting better forever and ever yeah <laughs> that's what i think that like 2000 was like i think the 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 bush v, like bush v gore was sort of like when every like where reality like sort of i think kind of came crashing in and like that attitude was like was completely like was shattered but I think that before everyone kind of was like oh we're good you know everyone's fine you know we don't have we dealt with all of like the problems mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what I think. that's what yeah. I look when I look at the 90s now it's just not I mean obviously there were people that were really doing the deep work and the deep thinking but I think culturally we all a lot of people were on board with like you know oh yeah what a weird I went to a considerably progressive elementary school in Park Slope public school but I just I'll never forget because I had a single well my mom and dad were separated which was unheard of and so I just remember these parents that were supposed to be progressive but then the treatment that I got like the shock and awe of having a like a single mom and just I remember so early that visceral feeling of how parents would treat me different and there was a morality attached to it which makes me again think about this class experience there's and high school and schools is such a great it's such a great location to explore that because we almost forgive these hierarchies as like kids you know but we understand that we carry that we learn it that's where you're learning to socialize and we literally carry it with us through the rest of our lives so it's all very intentional the fact that you felt that way in a progress i mean you were in brooklyn in probably one of the most progressive elementary schools in the country and the fact that you felt that way i can't even imagine where how other people were feeling and then we were but we were being told by the media a very different story we were, everything's fine we were being, yeah we were being fed a very different kind of narrative and i think that's what i find so fascinating about the 90s is that i mean now we're in this whole other bizarre period in terms of like what you know fact versus fiction and you know all of that but in the 90s it's like what we said we were as a country as a society versus what was actually going on behind the scenes i think it's also i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like the 80s and 90s were probably like the 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 weakest points in american history for like the left and i don't mean Mm -hmm. liberals i mean like the left just like after after all of the losses of the late 60s and 70s and you know the boomers mm-hmm. all selling out and like and the the absolute 
transformation of the Reagan revolution and then Clinton coming along and being like, I'm basically like cool Reagan who can play the saxophone. And like, <laughs> I think ever, yeah, I think I'm so cool I think Reagan. The, the, that's, yeah. That is what fucking you're right. Clinton you're is. Right. He's just cool Reagan. But yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. So what we were getting fed was like, Look, Soviet Union is gone. The, Did the, it? The, the, the stock market, all time high. Like we are, we are good. Everyone is good. It's just like enjoy your bits and bobs and your little toys because that's all we got to worry about. <laughs> Sexism doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I think nope. this is the kind of like this was really. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm sure you both feel the same, but like as an adult looking back on that period and like you know, and I was, I was born in 1980. I was born. And like the last month of Jimmy Carter's presidency. <laughs> and it, it really is like, it's crazy to think about the fact that like, I was like, a, I was an 80s, like Reagan, like when consumerism was just at its mm. peak. And I was being marketed to like in a way that, I mean, it, I think it just got more and more intense. And by the 90s, it was like, it was, it, it intensified even more, I would say. But like the way that you are taught to be a consumer from, you know, Mm-hmm. from your absolutely is just really kind of crazy the last thing i wanted to hit real fast is and this might be part of the satire is like there's a lot of cultural appropriation in this movie you know there are like that like there's a whole scene built around a bunch of white kids singing rolling with the homies uh when we're introduced to christian's character he's like you do you know he's doing like the whole like i dig man like that thing and in fact like dan hedaya has a great line where he's like what did you think the death of sammy davis left an opening in the rat pack there was like the one and then there's the one line of shares to her to the their housemaid where she says i don't speak mexican and then she gets upset and then paul and then josh is like she's from El el salvador it's a totally different country but those are the only moments that i was like oh this maybe didn't age super well I think the Mexican one actually, I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, it's, it's so offensive, Mm. but it also, I feel like because it was course correct, like because it was corrected immediately and, and sort of painted share in a, you know, pretty bad light. I felt like it it gave us, it, it gave us an idea of like how she interacts with the world and the people that work for her. Mm. And so I, I, I felt like that one sort of, you know, it, it's offensive and it would it would be offensive now and maybe it wouldn't be maybe it wouldn't be written now. But mm-hmm. I think a version of it would be written. I'd, agr- I'd I agree with you. Shows- but you're right. It, it's played as offensive in the scene. Like Josh it's is offensive. like, what? Yeah. Like what you just yeah. said is offensive. Amy Heckerling loves Cher too much. There's too much love and there's too much banking on the fact that like they got to sell this so people love share so i think that's that's the only part that made it potentially cringy was just that you're like yeah but the fact that we forgive her in spite of it makes it kind of casual racism but she's a good person so it's okay yeah i i think that that's sort of where it would be it would, i think the scene would be written slightly Wait, differently yeah. today sure. you know because i but i but i do think that like those little moments go a long way towards reminding us that this person isn't she's not this person that we can be rooting for 24 to 7. you know in a way that i actually think that like legally blonde and i haven't rewatched in years but i think that that character she's just so like she's just unflappable and she doesn't actually say offensive things to people she's just really ditzy you know Mm -hmm. so those are differences i mean the thing she says to ty too like i think could also fall into that category which 
what the kind when she first is when she's first there and it's like she's talking about what she's wearing and she's talking about like the fact that like she can't smoke weed during the day and like all mm. of these like judgments on who Ty is. I mean, I think to your point too, Frank, it's like this this elitist class will be like, we don't do drugs, but we do. Like we don't <laughs> do we any do. Of, but we do only when we want to and when we want to, it's okay. Yeah. Like there's, and I think it get, tries to, it makes that point, you know, but yeah. could even go farther if they were doing it today. It would be a little bit more courageous. You know, your friend Patricia Resnick talked about her sort of darker version of nine to five that she always oh, yeah. wanted. And I feel like there's a darker version here that could oh, yeah. be just so good. All right. Well, this is the point of the episode, Karen, where we give out awards for this movie. We got three of them. The first award is Best Politics. Goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. Oh, with the best politics? Best politics, <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I guess it... for me, this is a hard one, so I'll tell you why. So we just were talking about how I think we just decided that Josh is a neoliberal, so that's hard. You yeah. Know? yeah, I think that it's like it's it's hard for me to like 100 percent get on board with those politics. Now, I think it, it would have been the easy answer. The person that I know less about his politics, but I'm hopeful for his future would be Travis. Yeah, yeah. I'd be I'd be hopeful for Travis. I'd have to assume he's going to become radical yeah. being a skater boy, like just yeah. that he's probably more exposed eventually to radical politics. Yes. What's her name? Miss the teacher. She seems like she has good politics, too. Her heart is definitely in the right place. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, what's the class that she teaches? Like <laughs> civics or something? Yeah. She's the one that's like actually trying to organize everything. Yeah. What, I think she's that? maybe the most pure character politically. Absolutely. I would. I think that's right. Miss Geist. Miss Geist. Geist. Yeah. Yes, Miss Geist. Yeah, I think you're right. I think. I think Miss Geist probably has the best politics. I was also going to say Josh because at one point he's like, I want to get into environmental law. But, but then, he's working with the dad and like But yeah, but then he ends up working with the dad on the law. corporate law and Dan Hadea has yeah. the grain line where he's like he's like environmental law, what do you want to be miserable for the rest of your life? Yeah. <laughs> All right, worst politics. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. Well, so this is an interesting one because I actually think that a lot of the characters are are they're apolitical, which is mm. the worst is is bad politics, but I think that a lot of these, this is the funny, the, uh, the funny thing is that all of those young characters would be like young, not all, a, a lot of them are probably young Democrats, right? Or young, you know, mm -hmm. consider themselves liberal, would vote, you know, whatever their counterparts are today aren't voting for, you know, I mean, Ron DeSantis, for lack of a better word, or the lack of a better example. Not publicly. Um, <laughs> well, yes, 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 this is true. This is true. Maybe, maybe privately. I think the dad is an easy one because he, you know, clear. But I mean, maybe he isn't either. This is a tough one, guys. I think the worst politics is actually hard. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm on, I'm on that track. I think it's probably Mr. Horowitz because he yeah. is like he doesn't, he doesn't display any sort of like toxic politics, but he is like a very high paid corporate lawyer. Yeah. So we have to imagine. He's a piece yeah. of shit and yeah. his clients are pieces of shit. So I think just by like, just based on, because I mean, and also most of these, yeah. like you said, most of the other characters are high school students. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, and like, and also like, even when she's doing the Pismo beach disaster, you know, 
she's doing the, you know, all of that. You know, she's she's doing the donations and she's taking charge. Like, if he doesn't even offer like money for the disaster, and like right, he, they I, have so hope much for money. Share. Even though I do yeah. think Cher's politics are representative of something so atrocious, I think she could potentially, potentially be like moved and radicalized. It's sad that Josh could Josh hadn't. I think it makes Josh worse because Josh didn't like didn't even try like. But I'm with you. It's got to be. It's got to be the dad. I also don't like the way he parentifies her. And yeah, there's something icky about the that to me. That's like kind of you know that relationship. I don't like it. Um, yeah. All right, and our last award is best supporting character slash spinoff goes to your favorite supporting character and maybe a spinoff that you would want to see. So my favorite character from since the first time I ever watched it was Ty. Always. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ty was always my favorite character. So I always went for that outsider in the world. Like, she always was the one that I, like, loved the most. Uh, but there is, you know, who else would be? I mean, we know so little about all the characters. I think that's what's kind of amazing about the movie is that it's such a great cast. No, but all of I think all of them could be kind of fun. Totally. Except for Amber. I'm no, I have no interest in Amber. <laughs> Don't give a shit about Amber. Well, in the TV uh, series, I feel like Amber's character actually is the one to get a lot bigger and ties cool. get smaller. Yeah. No, that makes no sense to me. No sense at all. I love the, I love the, I love Murray. Is his name Murray, the boyfriend? Yeah. Yeah, Donald Faison's character. Great. Love, I like that when he's like, don't tell my mom, don't tell my mom about yeah. him shaving his head. Like, I'm curious to see what that world is. Like, who are they? Where do they, you know, what's I was shocked world? by how many tattoos these high schoolers had. So, so many, many, so many 16-year-olds with tattoos. <laughs> so many. I loved, okay, shout out to another line I love when Ty arrives and she's like, wow, you guys talk like grown-ups. And Cher I just know. delivers it perfectly. She's like, oh, well, this is a really good school. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, the lines are so, it's so good. Like, yeah. it's just mm-hmm. really, it's so well-written. Like, it really is. And like, you know. Just and such a perfect cast. So yeah, so I no. I think I'd be happy with a lot of spinoffs. Yeah, agreed. yeah. I would watch the Thai prequel movie where like her yeah. life in New York, and then I would also mm-hmm. I would also watch the like the Josh goes to work in corporate law, and then like has has like an identity crisis, and yeah. is like I need to become a public defender. Like this is I'm I'm so empty inside. Oh my god! Can you imagine the dark like just the dark like him being a, like just like. It's just being an overworked public defender. It's like the sequel to Clueless. <laughs> the other side. <laughs> what it means to, you know, get paid nothing. Yep. And devote your life. And Paul Rudd could, to Riffle. could play it at any point. Oh, yeah. Starting yep. just well, picking he right. Doesn't age. He doesn't age. Picking right back up. He looks exactly the same age now as he did that. It's It's insane. wild. It's amazing. It's, this was such a fun conversation. Before we wrap up, Karen, we ask our guests how in your daily life is there any way that you practice your anti-capitalist values or any of your values that you would like to share with us sure i mean i feel like i feel like the biggest way i i was i was trying to think about this because i actually think i could do more and better and i welcome suggestions but the first one is i've always been in unions and i think that that you know collective collective labor um, actions are sort of, 
I mean, we're seeing them being really incredibly successful in a lot of different sectors right now. And, you know, I'm, I'm really hardened that it seems like there's a resurgence of union and unionizing efforts. And then the other one is just so, I mean, I think that everyone is doing it now, but I really try to do the buy nothing on, you know, there's this buy nothing oh, yeah. page on Facebook. And I find that that's really a great place to to get things from people and to, to share things um, and to try to make sure that you use things for as long as you possibly can and not just like buy, buy, buy. Mm. Uh, and then also then to the same point, like, you know, getting every, like trying to get as much, um, especially for my son, getting as much secondhand as I possibly can. So either like, you know, getting it like for free from people on like the parent groups or, you know, exchanging it for like, you know, for exchanging it for money, but like between people as opposed to going to a store. Those are great ones. And yeah, I'm a part of my neighborhood's Buy Nothing group. And yeah, for any of our listeners who've never heard of it, there's probably a Buy Nothing in your neighborhood on Facebook. And I feel like they also build a sense of community. And I think that, you know, it's even like simple things like, you know, hey, I'm leaving town and I've got like a, I've got a, you know, I've got like a, a refrigerator full of veggies. Does anybody need them? You know, like just sort of like all of those ways of just like, you know, sharing like from big things to small things. Um, I think it's a really, I definitely feel like it's, it's helped our sense of community. I don't know if you feel the same way, Frank. Big time. Yeah. I've like, I've given away stuff to people who I didn't see on the street. I was like, oh, did you take that, uh, did you take that umbrella that we didn't use anymore? And they're like, yep, that was me. Yeah. Still using that umbrella. <laughs> That's great. Karen, this was such a fun conversation. Thank you for choosing this movie. I'm so glad we got yeah. to do it and got to talk to you about it. Thank you. Yeah. No, was so, this was so great. And such an interesting way to like talk about this film. And, you know, I had a great time. Thank you yeah, so much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to MVC Pod to find all of that information. For next week's movie, we'll be watching the 1976 satire of the capitalist media industry, Network. Thanks, everyone. 